Just one second. I want to um, make sure you know that after the second service, we're going to have a luncheon with him where he's going to talk more in some detail. I'll be interviewing a little bit on some of the stuff Christchurch has been doing. Christchurch is similar to High Point in a number of different ways. Um, and uh, so I thought having Mike here to talk about some of that stuff would be really helpful. So please come to that luncheon from 1 to 2.30. I think you'll, you'll like it. And there will at least be food, right? Uh, Mike Woodruff, who's going to be preaching today, is, has been the senior pastor at Christchurch Lake Forest in the northern Chicago suburbs since 2002. I was there um, from 2001 to 2003 before I went. And he's been pastoring then. I've since been to Florida and here for 13 years, and he's still their senior pastor. Before that, he was a college pastor in Washington State, a management consultant for about five years. He founded the Ivy Jungle Network, which is a, uh, was a network with um, people who did college ministry all over the country. Um, and he was president of Scholars, Scholar Leaders International. Um, that Scholars Leaders International um, helped put through a particular scholar to get his PhD at Asbury Seminary, who's in India right now, Manohar James. So the, the, Manohar James, his PhD at Asbury was in a good part funded by Scholars, um, Scholar Leaders International that Mike has been the president of it. It was a huge, huge benefit for Manohar. And right now there are hundreds of pastors today sitting in a very hot room learning about biblical exegesis, the history of religious persecution in India, how they can engage with implant churches in their country right this minute because of this organization that nobody's ever heard of, for the most part, that Mike has been leading in private. He's also a visiting scholar with the Murdoch Charitable Trust. Um, Mike's got degrees from DePauw University and Trinity International University, and somebody gave him an honorary doctorate, Sterling College. Um, I have specifically asked Mike to come here to talk about um, how churches can transition into service, care about people outside of them, how we can be church, a church in this present time. Mike and I are both interested in what's going to happen, looking at the culture and what's happening, understanding the times so that the church can step into the future rather than be running up behind things. Does that make sense? And so I thought hearing from him would be really beneficial for us as a church. Why don't you welcome him? Thank you. Uh, great to be here. Fun to see Nick and Lexi and their family here doing good work. Uh, not a surprise, but fun to see. And, and whoa, this thing moves. That's okay. Uh, so just so you know, Nick is being more patient than I have been when it comes to annual meetings and budget discussions. So we have, we, we're, we have four campuses, so we have a handful of meetings. You can ask your finance questions. And we say, if you show up with a question, you will be escorted out. You cannot ask a question. And we'll just tell you to vote no, because we are not going to listen to finance questions. We talk vision and excitement and the gospel and all this stuff and then somebody says could we change phone carriers because my uncle works with a company and they could save us nine dollars a month and you're just like you need to go to another church so anyway <laughs> so I have an assignment and uh, I, I heard the assignment from Nick a few months ago and and I I decided that the best way to to handle that assignment is to give you an overview and then drill down on a few things. And so this becomes a little bit of a different kind of a sermon, but oh well. So as you may know, there are a number of, all four gospels have this uh, episode in which, uh, it, which is called Peter's Confession. 
And uh, it's, it's, in, um, it's in Matthew 16, it's in Mark 8, it's in Luke, uh, not, or six, Luke 9 and John 6. And, and the one that we're calling up here is from Matthew uh, 16. And they're, they're, the disciples are on the, walking with Jesus, they're on the road to Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asks them, and he says, uh, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're Jeremiah, you know, there's other prophets. And he goes, okay, well, that's interesting. Good to, good to keep your ear to the ground. Good to know what people are saying. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, always going first, Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that, that the scriptures have been pointing to since Genesis chapter three, the first statement of the gospel. You're the one, you are the man. You are the son of God. And Christ's response to Peter is to say, Peter, that answer is so spot on, right? That I know you didn't come up with it on your own. You got it from chat GPT or you got it from something. He says, you got that answer from God in heaven. And blessed are you and I'm gonna call you Peter Petros and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now there's a few things to understand here. So th this passage gets a lot of ink through, through history because Catholic, Roman Catholics would say this is sort of the endorsement of Peter is the first bishop of Rome, the pope, and all that. I, we're not going there today. I don't think that's what it means. I think what he's saying is, yes, on that declaration, on that statement that I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the one that people have been waiting for, I am going to build a movement. And so he uses this word, ecclesia. It's a Greek term that was, had fallen out of favor. He reaches back into sort of Greek philosophy. And he pulls out this word. And, and it was a political term, and it talked about movements, and he said, I am going to build this movement, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, just be sure you understand what he's saying here, because I think some people think that, that the statement Jesus is making is that the walls that I put up around you will, will be able to withstand the assault of evil. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, the, the walls that evil will put up around itself to try and protect itself from me will, will not be able to sustain the, the offensive assault of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail. They will not be able to hold back this movement that I am going to start. Now, this is a shocking statement. Now, I want to talk about the church and, and when I say church, I mean uh, you. Okay, so when we use the word church, it refers to a building, go down the... I ran, I, I got in last night, and I went for a run, and I ran to your church. Okay, so I ran to the building. So we use the term that way. Some people, you could go home this afternoon and say, I went to church this morning. We use the word church to refer to a service. Or you could say, the church in the West is having a difficult moment. It's growing in Africa, Asia, Latin America, 
uh, former Soviet bloc countries, but the church in the West, an institution, a big sort of global enterprise. The word church can be used in a variety of different ways. I'm using it very specifically to refer to you. You are the church. We are the church. The church is gathered on Sunday morning and scatters uh, after, after we are here today. There's, and there's multiple aspects to a church. There is there is the cause, the mission, there is the community, the people together, and then there's a corporate side of things. You've got an annual meeting to attend to the corporate side of things. So when I'm using the word church, I'm talking about you, and I'm talking specifically about you in the context of, of the mission. And so I want, to, uh, I want to suggest that you could think of yourself in a particular way, and the metaphor that I'm gonna use is of a ship. Not unique to me, in the, in the 80s, there was a lot of people saying the church is a ship, but the problem is, is that it's a, it's a cruise ship, it's a luxury ship, and all kinds of people, they're consumers and they get on the ship and they just are interested in the buffet, and that, that's, the church has become this cruise ship. Okay, and then there were people that started to talk about the church as if it's a battleship, right? There's a culture war going on and we have to have a battleship that is gonna engage, okay? Uh, then there was another term, the church was referred to as a, uh, as a floating hospital. Like Mercy Ships has these, these big ships that they will send to places that, where there's famine or there's been a you know, tsunami or something and they go in and provide relief. Okay, I, I like that better, but I actually have a different, a different idea of the kind of ship that you ought to understand you are a part of. So we're going to play a uh, one-minute clip here. Can we go ahead and run that? So Tom Cruise and I are almost exactly the same age, and, <laughs> and I watch him in these movies sprinting and other things, and I'm like, and I hear he does all his own stunts, and I go, that cannot actually be true. So I'm, look, uh, I can't imagine he'll make another one in 25 years, but that's uh, the, the, the first few moments of the original Top Gun, and I love this idea of thinking of the church as an aircraft carrier in which there's a whole bunch of people who operate, as I understand it, I was not in the Navy, uh, 
But as I understand it, there's an admiral for the aircraft, uh, on the aircraft carrier who's focused, or at least the captain who's focused on the ship and all the things that the ship has to do in order to take care of those people who actually have a different command structure and they have a mission. And so there are people who are serving inside the walls of the church. Every church has to have a whole bunch of things in order to operate. You drive by a church building and you can rightly assume, oh, I bet you that they have some pastoral staff. I bet you they have a youth ministry. I bet you they have musicians. I bet you they have greeters. I bet you somebody has to make coffee. I bet you there's, there's leadership team. Like there's a whole bunch of people that have to operate the aircraft carrier. But then you should understand that they operate that aircraft carrier so that other people can come in, land on the aircraft carrier, get refueled, get realigned, understand their mission for the next flight, and then after a, a period of encouragement and rest and realignment are launched back off of the deck out into the week to carry out their mission. So it could be that your assignment as a Christ follower is on the aircraft carrier. I, one of the guys I worked with was on an aircraft carrier. He was in charge of launching the, 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 he was in charge of the cable that, that actually helped launch them. And uh, that was his assignment. You may have an inside the walls assignment, but maybe you have an outside the walls assignment. Maybe you are an F-14 fighter, pilot, and you get launched out in the week to, to serve. Now, let me just pause here to say, yes, there's, there's the metaphor is not perfect. I'm not, I'm not thrilled that it's, a, you know, that it's a military metaphor. When we talk about the church, uh, at Christ Church, we talk about communities of grace, hope, and love that are based on the, the life and the teaching and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I, I don't want to go there, but I just want to, I want you to think a little bit about what it is that you're doing here and why you're here and what's going on here and how amazing this is. But I want you to think about that also against the backdrop that you are getting launched off the deck of the aircraft carrier in order to love and serve and share and be the church out in the world. So, um, I, I actually am a fan of the church. The church has done many things wrong. People sometimes will tell me, you know, the church has made some mistakes. And I go, <laughs> I've been on staff of the church for 35 years. You don't know half the mistakes we've made. I, I hide as many of my mistakes as I can. Like, you think you're telling me things I don't know? Over the last 2,000 years, the church has got a lot wrong, and we need to be quick to admit it. We are broken, and our best efforts fall short. But the church has done a lot of things right. So much of what is good, so much of what it works, so much of the framework of, uh, of society that works is based on Jesus and his teaching. And if you go back, I'm, I've been for the last four years working on trying to walk myself through the last 3,000 years to understand how we got here. And you go back and you look and you see that, that uh, Look, the, the whole framework for human rights, 
comes out of Jesus Christ. And the whole celebration of humility as a virtue, as opposed to just being a chest-pounding honor culture where it's all about power. That all happens because of Jesus Christ. And you see that, that it, is, it is the Christian worldview that gives the framework for science, as opposed to, as opposed to the other worldviews that either thought that the, the earth was a god and you couldn't perform experiments on it, or thought that there was no order it was, it was the natural theologians that said, I can learn more about the creator by studying creation. It gives launch to science. It is Christians that launch hospitals. It is Christians that launches higher education. It is, it is increasingly acknowledged in some secular communities that this is the case. Tom Holland is a, not a Christian, but uh, a British Oxford historian who came out with his book, Dominion, about a year and a half ago in which he sort of studied his way into a re realization that, wow, like what Jesus did really, really, really mattered and was good. There was a study done at, uh, four or five years ago. It's subsequently been recreated in a number of different settings. <clears throat> Initially, it was done at the University of Pennsylvania. And it was an economist, and he studied in Pittsburgh, he studied, I think it was 12 churches. And he tried to figure out what was the economic impact of these churches. And he came away saying the community, the positive community impact of a congregation of 200 was uh, about $10 million a year to the good. There is, uh, there is so much going right in the church and because of the church. And uh, the church is growing. In the West, this has been a difficult uh, season. But the church in Africa, Asia, Latin America is growing like a brush fire. And many people are coming to faith. And there's much to be encouraged about. And uh, the church will prevail. So it is unstoppable. Uh, it is a candle that cannot be blown out. The, the old adage that uh, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus said, I'm going to build this church and it will prevail, uh, you know, the big names were, were Nero uh, and, and Herod and Caesar. And Peter and James and John were, were, these, were these people that were being put to death. And today we name our children Peter, James, and John, and we name our dogs Nero and Herod and Caesar. <laughs> So the church is going to prevail. The church is something that we ought to be encouraged by. The second reason uh, I want, second thing I want you to understand about the church, that this would be a whole sermon or sermon series in itself, and I heard Nick very quickly give reference to your mission, which sounded very thoughtful and, and positive, is that uh, we have as a mission uh, an assignment both to proclaim the good news, to talk about Jesus in an empty tomb and God's love and, and him sending his son and forgiveness of sins. We have a responsibility and opportunity to talk about uh, the gospel itself. And we also have an assignment to engage in good works. So there is, a, there is a, an, an and in there. Uh, we say proclaim the good news and engage in good works. And I think that the order of that is perhaps important because lots of people are trying to do good works. That you don't have to be a Christian to try and help other people. Uh, and, and, but I, I, put, I put 
the gospel first because it deals with eternal things, not because it deals with spiritual things. Don't, don't make that mistake. It deals with eternal things, and uh, the church is the only one carrying that news. But we have a mission, so you, you need to understand the church's mission. You need to understand about the church that you have uh, an assignment to serve. So I'm talking, my goal, my assignment today is, is, to, is to encourage you to think about ways that you are going to serve more. Inside or outside the walls of the church, formally or informally, uh, you know, through programs of high point or not, there's a, all kinds of ways in which we need to understand that we are called to serve. So I spend a lot of my time doing this in part because it actually is my job, not the assignment from Nick, but in Ephesians 4, there's the statement that Paul gives, uh, that Paul is giving, and he says, you know, there are apostles and there are evangelists and there are prophet teachers, and, and there are pastors and teachers who are called to equip the saints for the works of service, right? So the job of the pastoral team in one sense is to equip everyone else to do the work. Right, that is, that is part of the assignment. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell on everybody, and so we all have been called and equipped to serve. I am motivated to get people to serve because this is what Scripture holds out. Philippians chapter 2, uh, that, that, famous, uh, that famous passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, it's one of the oldest hymns that, that we have. Paul, obviously, and he's, he's writing this letter to the Philippians. He's in a jail in Rome. He's writing the, to the Philippians, and he drops this hymn right into the text. And it's, it's some of the most important Christological uh, framing that we get in the entire Bible. And, and Paul says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being found in likeness as a man, he humbled himself by, to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a hymn that gets dropped into Paul's letter. And what he says is, Jesus, pre-incarnation, pre-Christmas, Jesus existed from eternity past as God, enjoying the form of God, enjoying all the rights and privileges and, and love and, and honor and glory and majesty of God, but he gave that up. He did not cling to that. Somehow, we don't understand, but somehow, he, he, through addition, becomes less. He adds humanity to deity, and he shows up as a child. And he shows up as a child, and not just uh, as a child in humility, but he's going to eventually become a slave, and a slave that goes to his death, and not just death, but the worst kind of death, crucifixion. That Christological passage is incredibly profound, and it gets all kinds of study. We cannot afford to miss. Paul drops it in there to say, hey, you should be like Jesus. This, this passage that theologians have studied for 2,000 years to try and understand the, what we call the hypostatic union, the dual nature of Jesus, how he can be fully God and fully man at the same time. The passage is not there to talk about Jesus. It's there to say, this should be your attitude as well. Take your marching orders from Jesus' example. 
Do what he did. Nobody has ever started higher or gone lower. You should start where you are and find ways to go to the end of the line and serve others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he was God, went here in order to serve. Serve. Another reason that um, I am calling on you to serve is because Scripture is replete with passages that instruct us to serve. There's a whole number of them. I think we've got a slide on that. Basically, you, you know these. These are not uh, particularly new or novel. Uh, James celebrating faith uh, and saying faith without works doesn't work. In Hebrews 10, uh, we're to spur one another on to love and good deeds. The Matthew passage telling us that we should let our good works uh, draw people in and direct them to God and marvel at, at, at who we, at, at the good things that we're doing and be encouraged spiritually. Uh, we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, 2 Thessalonians, don't grow weary of doing good. So there's all these passages that talk about the need to do good. Let me say, one of the reasons as a pastor I am always trying to get people to serve is because I know that, that, that life is better when people are serving. That everybody wins when you serve, starting with you. You win, the person you serve wins, the church wins. It is a win-win-win scenario. Well, back, I asked some people who were, I just in a sermon, I just said, hey, if you have, you have, as part of your spiritual journey, if you have uh, started to serve in ways that surprise you, send me a letter and let me know how that's going. So I'm going to read a few of these. This is a, a trader. He says, I used to think I was too busy to serve. Only people who don't have a life have time for that. Then I started to get more involved in the church and realized that more was expected. I signed up to help in the nursery. That was safe and not too demanding. <laughs> Clearly, he didn't serve very often in the nursery. <laughs> then I was asked to usher, and that was fun. Then I got involved in men's ministry and found out that I was able to do other things to be helpful. But the most rewarding thing I've been able to do is serve as a leader in junior high and high school. I turned my back on God when I was 15. If I can help one even one kid turn his life over to Jesus. How awesome is that? He goes on to write, the blessings that I have received through serving cannot be measured. A journalist wrote me and said, uh, investing in people's lives has paid far greater dividends than my 401k ever will. The rewards of serving have always exceeded the costs. A mom wrote and said, uh, God fulfilling his purposes through me makes life worth living. What a privilege it is to be his hands and feet. I have learned how awesome it is to take one of God's nudges and step out in faith, leaving my human frailties and limitations behind. I have um, a number of others. A banker, what's so amazing about God's goodness is that he gives me joy when I serve. How great is God? A CEO, why do my wife and I serve? It's the most fulfilling part of our life more than any thing the world of business has ever provided. So I'm trying to get people to serve because I know that this will be a catalyst in their own spiritual development. That, that there is a point 
almost one of these tertiary conversions that we go through. We come to faith, and, and then, we, at least if your experience is like mine, not really understanding a whole lot of what was going on, and then that becomes clearer, and then there's this sense of like, oh, actually, this isn't about me. This is about God, that, that I... God isn't on my beck and call. I'm on his beck and call. He's the, he's the star of the story. And then you start to realize, oh, I'm supposed to serve. And it's it, one of these transitions is to say, wow, I actually uh, get to humble myself and serve. And that's one of the ways that I can grow. So, um, look, I encourage people to serve without apology because I know that there are rewards that will come in the life to come that come out of what we do. Jesus said, do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Store up your treasure in heaven, right, where none of those things can happen. He also says, don't think that you've given up anything for me. Don't think that you've suffered for me in any way that it's not going to come back to you a hundredfold in the life to come. So we are saved, just full disclosure, we're saved by grace through faith. We don't add to that, can't add to that. Our best efforts are filthy rags. Jesus' work is complete on the cross. But understand, about half of the parables talk about the fact that those to whom much has been given, much is expected. That, that there, is a, there is a sense. That half the parables are these shocking stories about grace, and half of the parables are calling on us to get in the game. And if you're a five-talent person, you better not bury any of those talents. Like, you've got to use them. We've got to use them. We get to use them. We are stewards temporarily entrusted with God's resources and expected to use them in ways that please him. So, um, look, another reason why I am uh, calling on you to serve, and again, Inside and outside the walls of the church, formal, informal programs, all kinds of ways. And, and let me just pause here because I, wow, we just had uh, infant dedications. I routinely say to two groups of people, you have a pass from serving because you are serving. So young moms who are not getting any sleep, I said, you know, just, just you're serving, you're serving, you're serving. Don't beat yourself up. And there are some seasons where people have been beat up, maybe by the church, maybe in other things where you say, you know, you, you, can, you can sit in the back for a little while, but, but don't sit there too long because, because part of your healing is going to come through serving. Like part of the way forward for you is going to come by serving. So there are a variety of reasons and a variety of ways in which I think that serving is absolutely important and necessary. Let me just step back and say one thing that sort of frames this in the context of, of what Nick has talked about. This is not a, in many ways, many things are going well, right? I, I make people mad when people come up to me and say, Pastor, don't you think that the world is about to end? You know, don't you think that all the signs are there, the world's going to end, you know, like these are the last days, and I go, I don't know. Uh, for 2,000 years, people have thought that, and they've been wrong so far. And, and uh, all I know is that uh, we're called to, to do these things, and I'm going to do them, and I don't know. And lots of things are going well. Like, we're fixing 
significant poverty around the world, and we are seeing clean water go to places that it's never been before. There's a lot of ways in which we're seeing things get better. But there are lots of things that are bad, for sure. There are lots of trend lines I don't like. There are lots of things that I go, I don't know how that's gonna resolve itself. And uh, there's, there are things about which I am, I am frustrated. But I know this, right, that, that the, the best thing I can do is to be part of, of following God's call to build a church that's gonna prevail. So a number of years ago, um, there was a book written called A Christian Critique of the University. It was written by uh, uh, Charles Malik, a uh, Lebanese scholar. Uh, and, and he said the most important question that we can ask, I, I think he's wrong, but he said the most important question we could ask is what does Jesus think of the curriculum in higher ed? Because he said, there's seven institutions in the world. Uh, it was the family, the church, the state, business, the arts, uh, media. I think he had the profession. So he had seven, seven institutions and he said, the most important one is higher ed because higher ed trains the leaders for all the other seven. So I, I, I don't think that's, I didn't think that was true then. I'm not sure it's true now. But here's what I know. In the last 30 years that I've been paying attention, the influence of the family and the influence of the church has gone down. And the influence of the state has gone up. And you could argue that the influence of business has gone up, whatever. But no institution has a chance if the church fails in its job. Like, parents need strong churches. Civic, civil government needs citizens who who are going to be good citizens, right? And that comes, as Washington and Adams and all kinds of others have said, that comes by religious people. What we can do to make this world better, what we can do to be obedient, what we can do to grow spiritually, what we can do to, to others is to help build prevailing churches. And part of that is about serving. And it's serving in all kinds of ways. So I want to say to you, you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And your life will get better and everybody else's life will get better if you do those good works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be involved in your work in the world. We thank you for... Uh, the example, Lord Jesus, that you gave to us about going to the end of the line, putting the needs of others ahead of our own. We marvel that uh, you would do that for us when all you could expect from us was, um, was active hatred and rebellion. You laid down your life for us. Help us to see others better. Help us to see opportunities to serve in big and small ways. Help, uh, help the church to be more of the bride of Christ that you have um, commissioned us to be. Pray for High Point that you, would, uh, that you would bless the efforts, the collective efforts of the church gathered right now in this room and scattered around Madison. Father, may they, uh, may they please you. May they grow in uh, faith and hope and zeal. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.